or siblings, if you've ever heard a phrase in your home that goes something like this, I can do it all by myself. My mom tells me when I was young that I would say that frequently. And I was surprised to hear that I wasn't the only one. Other children say phrases like that or something similar. Uh, A friend of mine tells the story of taking his daughter to Riceville Beach, and they went and had a great day at the beach, a great time together. And so they leave the beach, and they walk back to the car, and it had been one of those blazing hot days, like the days we've had this past week with the dangerous heat index and all of that. And so they're getting back to the car, and you know how it is if your car has been sitting out there baking in the sun for hours Uh, it just becomes a little inferno. And so they get back to the car, and he unlocked it, and his little three-year-old went to get inside. And he said, sweetie, wait a minute, let me help you. Because he knew that she needed something to protect her legs from the black leather that had been baking in the sun for the past four hours. But her response, I can do it all my myself. She didn't seek his help. And she sat her little legs right on the molten leather and got a terrible surprise when the hot seat made contact with her bare legs. You see, her father knew what she needed, and he was right there. But she refused to seek him first. She wanted to call the shots. I wonder if you've ever experienced something like that with your children, or maybe just in your own heart. Because oftentimes, we want to do it all my myself. So we don't seek our Heavenly Father's input or help. Because we think we don't need Him. And sometimes we can make an impulsive move, thinking that we know what's best. We make a move in our job according to some perceived need, or maybe we're making decisions about a relationship or decisions that affect our family. And we forget that all the while, our Heavenly Father is right there, and we forget to go to him first. It's true that life can throw at us some very painful or scary or unsettling situations, situations that are full of heat, and they demand a response from us. And just because you're a Christian and you're seeking his kingdom and his righteousness, that that doesn't mean the unsettling realities of life go away but neither does your Heavenly Father. He's there in the midst of those things, and He wants you to know something about Him. Because your Heavenly Father knows what you need, you must seek Him first. I think the passage before us today outlines nicely that our Heavenly Father knows what we need. He knows what we need in our worry. He knows what we need in our judging one another. He knows what we need in our prayer life. And so he can speak to those things. And he commands us to seek him first in each of those areas. So because our Heavenly Father knows what we need in our worry, we must seek him first. You know, what we worry about reveals a lot about us. It reveals what we value. And sometimes it's a legitimate worry. We worry about a friend's walk with Christ or something like that. That's worth being concerned about. And sometimes it's an illegitimate worry, worrying about keeping up with the Joneses or something like that. 
And to complicate matters, usually our worry and anxiety is a mixture of legitimate and illegitimate worries that are all kind of hopelessly tangled up together. And so when we bring our anxiety to God, he speaks into it. And here in Matthew 6, he offers his children the two very things they need the most in the midst of our worry. We need God's rebuke and we need God's assurance. And we might like the sound of the first word or the second word, assurance, better than we like the sound of the word rebuke. But God knows that his children need both. And so he gives them both, and we must receive these gifts. We must receive his rebuke. Three times in the initial passage, in the end of Matthew 6, Jesus repeats, Therefore, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Verse 25, verse 31, verse 34. The, this repetition is the biblical way of highlighting something. Why repeat this? Because there's a form of worry that is simply a disguise for mistrust and for disobedience. And it's sinful. It's the kind of worry that keeps Martha from Jesus. And it's the kind of worry that Jesus talks about in the parable of the sower when he sows the seed that falls and it, as it grows, the, the plants and the thorns grow up around it and choke it. And he says it's choked by the cares of this world or the anxieties of this word, world. The same word is in Matthew 6. And what does it do to the plant? It makes it unfruitful. Which is just what Jesus points to next, the fruitlessness of worry. Who can add a single hour to his life, to his span of life by worrying? See, ultimately, worrying is futile. Instead, seek first the kingdom of heaven, and all these things will be added to you. Now, it's not seek first the kingdom of heaven in order that, or so that, all these things will be added to you. That's a pretty common teaching today, but that's very wrong-headed in its approach. The idea is that all of us are going to have to work for our daily bread, and we are all going to face the fundamental needs of living in this world. But what will our posture be towards our Heavenly Father? Will our worry lead us to a posture of anxiety and fear? Or will our posture be one of love and trust? Receive the rebuke from God. Don't be anxious. Your Father knows what you need. But He knows that we don't just need His rebuke. We also need His assurance. So Jesus repeats. So as Jesus repeats, don't be anxious. We have to ask, does that mean we should never worry? We should never be concerned about anything? If you find yourself worrying at any time, is it sinful? What about our children? What if they're choosing a path that uh, we know is not the right path? What if we have a sick parent or a sick child? Is Jesus saying that it's wrong, it's sinful to worry about that? No, he tells us what kind of worrying he's talking about in verse 25. Worries about food and clothes for ourselves. Those are the things we shouldn't worry about. Why? Because they're unimportant? No. They are important. See verse 32. Our Father in heaven knows that we need them all. Did you hear that? Your heavenly Father knows what you need. Even better than yourself. 
That word consider, consider the lilies of the field, it's the only time that Greek word is used in the entire Bible, which tells me that it was chosen carefully to convey this idea of consider, look at, inspect with a view towards learning something. Inspect that flower. It has something to teach you. It's more splendid than Solomon in all of his glory, and yet it never toils nor spins. How? The Heavenly Father takes care of it. Jesus says that the Father takes care of the birds in the same way. So note the argumentation here. If this, well then certainly this. Well, If this, then how much more this? The ultimate punctuation mark of that type of argumentation comes in Romans 8.32. For God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? So the thinking goes, he provided you with your life. Won't he take care of it? If he takes care of the lower orders of creation, how much more will he take care of you? The Gentiles are the ones who should be worried. They have no heavenly father to take care of them. Don't be like the godless Gentiles. Seek God's kingdom and righteousness today, and you'll find his assurance. I can remember walking into a grocery store last year uh, with our family, and Hannah Grace gave me permission to tell the story, but as we're walking in, we see a poster alerting us to a missing child. And Hannah Grace asked, what's that about? And so we told her in a way that was very honest, but also in a way that was appropriate to tell an eight-year-old um, what that poster represented and about that situation. And she said, okay. You know, so we moved on through the day. But then that night, and then the next several nights, she was overcome with a lot of worry and anxiety that something like that might happen to her. And it was really something that gripped her and she couldn't get it out of her mind. And what did she need from her mother and her father? Well, she needed the same two things. She needed to be corrected, and she needed a rebuke in the sense of saying, Honey, you know what? Worrying about this is, is futile. And um, if you can't spend all your time you know, being consumed by this you have a heavenly father who cares for you and he knows your every need and he knows you and he cares for you. And so we gave her also that assurance that we're going to protect you because we recognize we do live in a broken world with broken people. But you know what? Even in the most broken situations, your heavenly father knows what you need. You know, it's a common worry for a child you know, am I safe? Jesus here is speaking to the most common worries of first century life in Palestine. And so we must translate what he's saying to the most common worries in our contemporary world. So what is it that gets caught in your mind and causes anxiety to come over you and to grip you? Where it feels like it's, it's robbing you of, of your breath, it's choking you. Does it have to do with the economy? Is there constant worry about our job? or if it will be there next year, or next month, or next week? Is your portfolio dying along with your hopes of retiring early? Are you worried about a member of your family, one who's struggling spiritually, 
or physically? Or do you have other anxieties? Maybe you worry about what people say about you or what people think about you. Let me assure you, your Heavenly Father knows what you need, what level of financial, physical, and emotional health you need. And that's why He rebukes us. Because in these sensitive areas of life, He's exhorting us to walk in a posture of trust. Don't let your worries cause you to to fret and to act as if your Heavenly Father is not there. We We must not come across in the exact same manner as the Gentiles, with no Father in heaven. After all, He gives His assurance that He knows what we need. So what is it that you worry about the most? What has the power to keep you up at night? Whatever that is, I want to encourage you today, each time you see a bird or a flower, consider the silent rebuke and hear the silent assurance of your Father in heaven. He cares for them. Are you not of much more value than they? Oh, we of little faith, children of the King, seek Him first. He knows what you need. Your Heavenly Father also knows what you need, or what we need. Heavenly Father knows what we need when we judge. So we must seek Him first. See, Jesus knows the very pitfalls that His disciples will inevitably face. And hypocrisy is one of them. The pursuit of holiness will always involve this potential. So Jesus says, Do not judge, lest you be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And again, we have to ask, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that we don't have to, we don't exercise any opinions about right or wrong at any time? Hitler? The slave trade? Judge not, lest you be judged. Is that what he means? I don't think so. I mean, three verses later, he is calling people pigs and dogs. A few paragraphs later, he's identifying false prophets. And you have to use your judgment to make statements like that. And in John 7, Jesus calls us to judge one another rightly. So what is this wrong judging in Matthew 7? And I think if we study the passage in light of the other biblical commentary on judging others, we recognize that Jesus is not saying that we shouldn't use our judgment, but he's saying that we shouldn't be judgmental. Don't confuse discernment, which is good, with condemnation which is not good. So how do we navigate this narrow road? Well, for one, we must exercise humility. Jesus is denouncing the kind of severe pharisaical judgment that lacks humility. And Paul does the same in Romans 14.10. Paul says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? And then the parallel line, Why do you despise or look down on your brother? It's judging in that sense, looking down on someone, despising them. I mean, why is it so natural? It's so natural to undervalue my own sin and to overvalue yours. Why is it so natural for me to compare the best of me with the worst of you? All of us have that tendency. And so in the face of those tendencies, Jesus says, Judge not, 
that you be not judged. There's sort of a double meaning there in those first two verses. You know, if you're judgmental towards others, well, then it's very likely that they're going to be judgmental towards you. So it works on that plane. But it also works on this plane. To be quick to call others to account is to invite God to be quick to call you to account. This is the opposite of the command in Matthew 5-7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Here Jesus is saying, unblessed are the judgmental, for they will be judged accordingly. Christ community. Exercise humility in your judgment. When you go fault-finding in your zeal for righteousness, it's like this. And then he gives the picture, this illustration comparing the sawdust and the plank, the plank being the load-bearing beam of a house. And this is funny. I mean, Jesus is saying the same thing. as This is like the redwood tree teaching the shrub how to be low-profile, or the hippopotamus teaching the squirrel how to be nimble. I mean, this is preposterous. Again, there is a reordering here. First, first thing, deal with the load-bearing beam in your own eye. Then you can deal with the speck. Humility first. You have a log. They have a speck. Humility. And we must also exercise discernment. So verse 6 reads, Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So in verses 1 through 5, Jesus says, don't be condemning. But in verse 6, he says, but be discriminating. We are forbidden to damn, but not to discern. Verse 6 requires discernment. Do not give what is holy. I'm assuming that we're talking about, since we're talking about pearls, And since in Matthew 13, the pearl of great price is equated to the kingdom of God, uh, I'm assuming here again we're talking about that the the what is holy are the principles of the kingdom of God. Don't give what is holy to dogs. You see, uh, I think what Jesus is saying is do not give what is holy to those who are consistently vicious and irresponsible Paul says in Titus 3.10, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He's self-condemned. So we're called to be humble, but we're not called to be a doormat. But do notice the imbalance here. There's one verse on that side of the scale, and there were five verses on the other I can remember beginning my senior year at Davidson College, and my senior year in college, I didn't go off the deep end or anything, but there was a moment when I was starting to take a few steps off the path. And I can remember a friend of mine, Matt Griffith, who came to me, and he said, hey, I'd like to talk to you tonight, maybe if we get a chance, and he's kind of stumbling over his words, and maybe we could meet at the Lingle Chapel, and I could just talk with you up there. I said, oh, okay, great. You know, and so that night I'm walking to Lingle Chapel and I'm thinking, man, Matt, I you know, discipled him my freshman year and he probably needs to tell me something, needs me to pray for him, something like that. And so I get up there and Matt very humbly said to me, 
hey, listen, I'm concerned about some things that I see in your life and some of the steps you're making. And as he spoke to me, it was real clear that he had done some introspection first and he had used a great deal of discernment with the way that he said things to me. And I heard him and I was thankful for that. And compare that to an experience I had in high school when we had a chapel speaker. I did not go to a Christian school, but somehow we had this chapel speaker who was a very vehement speaker that day. And I remember the speaker kept repeating this line, glorify the creator. And she pointed at us and said, you rich people. And she's calling us names. And she quoted a lot from the scriptures. But man, it caused me to loathe that speaker. But here's the scary truth when you put those two stories up side by side. The scary truth is you can speak the gospel truth and still dishonor the God of that gospel if you speak it without humility and without discernment. Whenever we confront someone in their behavior or go to judge them, that should give us pause. You see, when you follow the principles laid down in the Sermon on the Mount and you're trying to pursue God's kingdom and God's righteousness, you're going to be more sensitive to sin and praise God. But we often only grow more sensitive to other people's sin and more blind to our own and more comfortable with our own. And then when we come across a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction or depression or their life isn't together and spotless like we think it should be, we can look down on them. And Jesus says, no, humble yourself. First, first, remove the load-bearing beam in your own eye. And we need to have that log removed so that we can approach our brother in humility. Because we need to be real sure that we can see clearly in order to discern the difference between what is sin and what is merely a difference of opinion. You see, just because someone disagrees with you on how to discipline your children or how to educate your children or if drinking alcohol of age is appropriate or which political party to support, just because someone disagrees with you on those things, that doesn't give you the right to judge them. These are highly sensitive topics with a myriad of variables that are unique to each person and situation. And if someone has a different opinion from you and you judge them, you look down on them, you despise them and condemn them for their particular behavior, let's consider what you're doing. You are dethroning the real judge and usurping his seat. Lord, spare us from that. If you're really worried about your brother and you care about him, the best thing you can do for him, according to Jesus, is first to humbly take the plank out of your own eye. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean that everyone else can't. We cannot convict others of their sins, particularly if they are merely differences of opinion. That's what verses 1 through 5 is trying to tell us. Nor can we impute righteousness to other people by constantly casting our pearls before them. That's what verse 6 is trying to tell us. 
And we have to wrestle with this. Judge, but do not be judgmental. I know I need someone to point me to the truth. I've got a lot of wood in my eyes. But I'm thankful for Matt Griffith, who offered me a picture of Matthew 7. And I'm challenging you to approach your brothers and sisters with humility, not from afar, through impersonal words of condemnation, which can be done from a chapel podium, or it can be done from a blog. There's lots of ways to do that. But to approach people with discernment, recognizing your own humanity and the humanity of the brother in front of you, even as we grow in righteousness, we need to turn to God first before we judge our brother. So when you seek after God's kingdom and righteousness, you're going to find that you're going upstream. And you're going to worry about your life because you're going to look around and you're going to say, everybody else is going that way. And that might cause you some anxiety. And you're going to be tempted to judge those who aren't swimming in the exact same path that you're swimming. And so Jesus addresses those two things. And now in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11, he speaks to our prayer life. Your heavenly Father, or our heavenly Father knows what we need when we pray. And so we must seek him first. And this is good news. This should motivate us to seek after him. If you told a child on December 24th, hey, guess what? Santa Claus knows exactly what you need. You know what? They're going to stay up and seek after him. And in these verses, Jesus encourages us in our prayer life to seek our heavenly Father. And how do we do that? We seek him by taking action. You can use ASK as an acronym. A, ask. S, seek. K, knock. These commands get repeated. Again, highlighting them. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. A vigorous pursuit of God is what's pictured here. Be active in your pursuit of God and his kingdom. By doing so, you are readying yourself for his response. When someone asks and seeks and knocks, they're demonstrating a needy posture, a posture of someone who's poor in spirit, who's dependent on their father. And these actions elicit a response from an earthly father, even though us earthly fathers are evil. Notice how Jesus just drops in the doctrine of original sin right there. You see, the earthly fathers do this sometimes, but... Being evil, sometimes we give the bread or we give the fish to silence the child or because it might make us look good. But not God. Ask, seek, knock. Bring everything before him. Don't be guilty of the sin of Isaiah's generation. He recorded God's words in Isaiah 65 where God said, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation that did not call my name. Be active in your pursuit of God. How else do we seek God? By pursuing intimacy. There's a reason that Scripture employs the father-child analogy here and not the uh, employee-employer relationship. Or the king-subject relationship. You know, a father and son relationship is the sphere where hearts are shared, not just duties. 
see also the repetition of the giving good gifts, giving good things in verse 10 and 11. Jesus does not promise us that he'll give us all things or that he will give us all the things that we ask for. No, he has good gifts in mind for us. And he already knows what we need, as we heard in Matthew 6, 8. So we're not praying to inform God of our needs, but we're praying to foster a relationship. Again, we see the how much more argumentation. How much more does the Father have good gifts to give you? He's not going to trick you. Come, ask, seek, knock, and enjoy intimacy with your Father. Charles Spurgeon uh, was a famous pastor and preacher who lived in the middle of of the 19th century, lived throughout most of the 19th century. And he preached for close to 40 years at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in the middle of London. And he uh, had an understanding of prayer. He said, make the most of prayer. Prayer is the master weapon. We should be greatly wise if we use it more and did so with a more specific purpose. When events would happen at his church, he would gather people to uh to come pray for those specific events and those specific services that happened. And they were active in prayer, seeking God, asking him to, um, to do a mighty work in whatever the event was that was going on there. And this was uh, reflective of Spurgeon's, Spurgeon's prayer life. It was said of him that he never prayed for more than five minutes. And he never went five minutes without praying. He had this active prayer life that went on throughout the day. And these people who prayed for his services and prayed for his church and prayed for him, they did so not because they wanted the church to grow numerically or anything like that, but because they wanted people to experience intimacy with their Heavenly Father and to be truly changed and to recognize the holiness of God and the depravity of man so that people might worship God and have this gratitude and intimate relationship with their Heavenly Father. When we're active in prayer and intimate in prayer, we experience the goodness of our Father to the fullest. So how do we respond to this? Well, we can ask and seek and knock and know that your Heavenly Father has the good gifts you need. The hymn writer had it right when he wrote, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. If you are going to take action in your prayer life, what will be the next step for you? What would invigorate you to ask and seek and knock and pursue the Lord? I've tried a a bunch of different things. Many of them have failed uh, in this respect, but... A couple of things I tried in this past year was one thing I tried was to pray through my day and not just a Lord bless my day, but to think of each thing that I was that was happening that day. I'm going to class and to pray about that. And then I'm going to run in with Jeff. And I'm going to pray about that. And then I'm going to come home and I get to eat lunch and Hannah Grace in there. But Jack is and I'll pray about that. And then and to go through my whole day and to bathe all that in prayer, because that way I, I feel like I'm more active and more present to God during those events. Or another way, sometimes when I would leave the apartment, 
I'll reach down and pick up uh, some trinket that belonged to one of my children, a little Playmobil pirate or a Matchbox car or something, and stick it in my pocket. And it went through a season where I had a lot of stuff in my pockets. But whenever my hand would brush it or I'd sit down and feel it, it would remind me to pray for that child. It was a way that I could be more active in prayer. So you don't have to carry stuff around in your pockets. I mean, what, what works for you? But I'm encouraging you to do to take some action in prayer. And what are you looking for when you pray? Is it answers? Or is it intimacy? Because if prayer is just telling God what you want and then waiting for an answer, that's just really treating God like the home shopping network, you know? If it's in stock, you know, you'll get it, that kind of thing. But there's no intimacy there. And prayer is designed to be so much more, so much fuller, so much richer. Don't just tell God what you want, but tell him what you hope for, what you long for, what makes you sad, what's on your heart. Because like a good father, he wants to give you what you need in all those areas. And even more than a good father, he can. He has told you what kind of father he is. Come, taste, and see the goodness of the Lord. So what do we need in the midst of our worry to foster trust in God? We need God's rebuke. We need God's assurance. What do we need in our judging to guard against sin and hypocrisy? We need humility and discernment. What do we need in our prayer life to invigorate our communion with our Father? We need action and intimacy. And these are the things we should offer one another in God's kingdom. So in Matthew 7.12, offers a nice compendium, a nice summary statement here. So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Since we have a generous Father, let us reflect that by being generous disciples. You know, it's so easy for me to picture that little girl jumping unknowingly into the hot car saying, I can do it all my myself. In the face of the heat and pressure of our own lives, the decisions about jobs and family, relationships with others, or even in our pursuit of our Heavenly Father, He does not expect us to walk alone. He knows we need help. And isn't that the gospel? We couldn't do it all alone. So the Father made a way to restore the relationship between us and Him by sending His Son to die on a cross. And God made Him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Why? Because our Heavenly Father knows everything we need. So in everything, Christ's community, seek Him first. Let me pray for us.